from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at the Hilton Hawaiian Village on the beach in Waikiki. On today's edition, the best or some of it from our tropical edition of the Hawaiian version of Verge, MGM Resorts bets against its local utility. What floats the Navy's boat when it comes to clean technology? And Hawaii's governor charts the course for 100% renewables. It's just another beautiful day in paradise, this week on 350. It's June 24th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. I'm here with GreenBiz senior editor, lay around her neck, Lauren <laughs> Hepler. Aloha, Lauren. Hey there, how's it going? I think it's actually some sort of replica macadamia nut. Very exotic. No, it's another kind of nut. I don't remember. It starts with a K, and I'm unfortunately I've had a lot of long words that begin with K that I get confused about here in Hawaii. Yeah. But um, it is uh, what they've... Uh, all the speakers, all the VIPs uh, are wearing these uh, beautiful lace. You'll be able to see it in the pictures. Um, we've uh, just closed out an amazing week here. We had about six or 700 people, about half from the islands, the other half from across the mainland and from uh, a number of Asian countries, including uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, China, Philippines, and others. It really was good. We weren't sure when we signed up for this uh, how it was going to work, but it was uh, seems to have been a really successful event. What did you think, Lauren? Yeah, I think it sort of really hit me when we first got here early in the week and I was sitting behind like this huge Navy brigade and the governor of Hawaii was there. Obviously, the Hawaii State Energy Office was the partner in this event because they're on this sort of very big quest to become 100% renewably powered in the electricity sector by 2045. They were the first U.S. state to do that. So quite a news peg for an event. And that's what brought us here is uh, a couple of years ago, just backstory. Uh, the Hawaii State Energy Office came and said, would you bring Verge to Hawaii? Because we're about, our governor is about to sign a, a bill committing uh, Hawaii to become the first state to commit to 100% renewable. And we'd like you to gather everyone, uh, sort of the ecosystem in the room, utilities, uh, entrepreneurs, energy developers, a uh, number of NGOs. Uh, the, the military defense uh, is a, one of the biggest customers of energy uh, here, not just in Hawaii, but in what's called PACOM, which is a Pacific Command, which actually represents half the globe. It's such a big area. So um, that's what we did. We brought them together, and we had a number of great sessions over three days. And what we're going to do in this show is uh, play you some highlights uh, from some of the, the speakers on stage, some of the sessions, and uh, hope that you get uh, a little bit of a flavor. We'll have a lot more uh, on greenbiz.com, so I look for that as well. (laughs) 
So to set the stage a little bit, uh, we're adapting the VERGE event series, which stands for sort of this convergence between sustainability and technology that's occurring in sectors from energy to transportation to food and water, um, and really sort of tailoring that to the Hawaiian context, uh, which is unique for a lot of reasons, not the least of which because uh, they spend billions of dollars a year on oil imports, being that it is an island. So obviously there's sort of an energy independence case here that makes it really interesting. Um, but it's sort of a, a really different perspective, but a good one, I think, to delve into. And uh, like some parts of, of the states, uh, but certainly more than most, it has some really great uh, leadership here. The uh, legislature uh, passed this, I think unanimously, that this law and Governor David Ige uh, signed it last year. He really gets it. I had got to spend some time with him. I interviewed him for our Green Biz Studio series and boy, can he does he get excited? He he can talk as long as you're willing to listen about energy, clean energy, and in in Hawaii, and not just what that does for the energy, but what it does for the energy systems here, but for the economy, uh, how they see that improving access, reliability, sustainability, uh, equitability, and and really the the whole nine yards, and and it's really I have to say. Refreshing. He opened the show on on Tuesday, and he spent the day. Uh, got to see the microgrid, and really hung around. And I have to say, it's just really refreshing to see enlightened leadership. Mm-hmm. And from sort of the journalist point of view, I also was really interested in how a lot of the emphasis was on sort of the the gray areas in the middle of sort of how you get from having a strong policy to implementing that policy, and maybe things that aren't explicitly included in the new law, like. Uh, so some of the transportation related things like specific fuel usage and all that. So there was a lot of talk about things that they can get controversial, like how utilities should be adapting and sort of what, say, ratepayers should have in all of that and what the role of liquid natural gas should or shouldn't be in all of this. So lots of hot button things that came up that we'll certainly get into in this episode. <laughs> Well, one of the newsier things that happened this week, it sounds a little wonky, but it's actually pretty interesting, was the signing of a memorandum of understanding between the Hawaii's governor, David Ige, and the Navy's assistant secretary, Dennis McGinn. So the idea here was to sort of make it formal in some ways, like the, these two parties have already been working together a little bit because the military employs more than 46,000 people in Hawaii, so they aren't strangers. Mm-hmm. But the goal is to sort of bring these two groups together as they both work towards ambitious clean energy goals. The Navy, meanwhile, is aiming to power 50% of its operations with alternative sources of energy by 2020. And uh, Dennis McGinn, the Assistant Secretary of uh, of Defense uh, for Navy, focusing on energy and environment, is such a pro at this. He, uh, first of all, was an admiral uh, in the Navy, but along the way, he just really got the energy, clean energy, security, resilience piece, not just for the military, but for society. And um, when he retired, he became the head of uh, ACOR, the American Council for Renewable Energy, and then got called back into service uh, at the Pentagon uh, during the Obama administration. And he it, he uh, is just as passionate about this stuff as, as anybody. And, and um, as is his counterpart at the Air Force, uh, Miranda Ballantyne, I think we'll hear from them uh, together a little bit later on. And it was so great to see the two of them, Secretary McGinn and Governor Ige, 
you know, standing together literally and figuratively and just promoting the, the notion that their future is very much linked to clean energy. Mm-hmm. And specifically, the, the idea with this memorandum was to sort of focus on specific areas where the two could partner. Um, and I'm curious to see whether that takes the form of funding or if they're talking about sort of on-the-ground partnership projects. Uh, that'll be interesting to see. But the, the three areas they've chosen to focus on are expanding infrastructure for gasoline alternative vehicles, deploying renewable energy projects, and increasing grid safety and resilience. Resilience obviously being this idea of sort of withstanding shocks, which you can see the security uh, interest in that for something like a cyber attack on the grid or a physical attack. Um, and then uh, on the Hawaiian government side, they're probably thinking about things like hurricanes or a whole array of risk factors. Well, let's hear from uh, the governor. Even with the rapid growth of renewable energy, about 80% of Hawaii's energy for electricity still comes from petroleum and imported oil. Hawaii continues to be the most oil-dependent state in the nation. We still spend roughly $5 billion a year on importing fossil fuels from around the world. And this dependence is a threat to our energy, economic, and environmental security. And that is what's driving our commitment, the state's commitment, to clean energy transformation. So where do we go from here? And this Verge conference is part of that. It really is about leveraging our position here uh, in the middle of the Pacific to, to access partners from around the world, um, proving emerging technologies and strategies before going to market. We do know that it will happen in Hawaii first before it happens anywhere else. And we do know that the challenge is about storage we have no problems in taking um, and generating energy from clean renewable sources because we have an abundance here uh, in the state of Hawaii. The, the challenge is about storage and getting storage to be economical, uh, consistent, and, and be able to de deliver, store the energy when it's available, and then more importantly, deliver it in a consistent, reliable way um, so that we can all uh, conduct the businesses that we need. We do know that long-term contract energy contracts uh, will encourage higher levels of investment and capital spending from around, amongst businesses. And more importantly, we believe that long-term agreements allows us to share the risk with the developers, both the technology risk as well as the price risk. Uh, and we do believe that that encourages investment in our communities to help us attain the clean energy goal. So let's pivot from the public sector to the private sector. Really interesting thing happened recently with uh, our good friends at MGM Grand, the the hospitality company, a massive hotel company uh, based in Las Vegas. Uh, they pulled out from their local utility. They severed the relationship with the local utility because the local utility stopped supporting renewable energy. And MGM Grand uh, has some of the biggest uh, solar installations uh, in the country, if not the world. Right. We talked to Cindy Ortega, 
And when I say we, I mean myself and Verge Director of Programming, Elaine Shea, who we were running sort of the online chat component of the event all week. And we spoke to Cindy during one of the breaks, who used to be MGM's chief financial officer and has since become a senior vice president and oversees their sustainability efforts. And it was really crazy to hear her talk about sort of the scale of energy that you're dealing with, with these sort of mega casino facilities or hotel facilities in Las Vegas. She said replacing all of their light bulbs alone, several multiple millions of light bulbs alone was a two-year project that cost $36 million. So that's just, yeah, that's a taste of what they're dealing with. Uh, But so given that scale, it made enough sense for them to sort of think about um, wanting to buy energy on an open market, which obviously you can't do in every place. Um, But they they thought it was worth it to go ahead and pay their power provider a fee approaching $100 million dollars to, to sever ties and be able to go out and sort of solve their energy problems on their own. So on the main stage, Cindy talked about this with Green Biz CEO Eric Farreau, and here's a taste of that conversation. Our most recent uh, foray in Nevada is that MGM uh, today uh, received its decision and final decision from the Public Utilities Commission to become a uh, full market customer for electricity. And we'll be the first uh, large customer in, in Nevada to follow a law and, and leave or and, uh, start taking unbundled service. We are leaving because it's the, it's the next and a natural progression of building a world-class uh, um, sustainability effort. When you, for us, it's about we want to be more agile and smarter. And when you uh, move away from you get an energy bill once a month, and then you look back and say, hmm, on that day, why did we have that split? I mean, I'm, we have metrics and stuff. To suddenly, on October 1st, I'm going to be looking at our ahead power. When I put my team toward looking at our ahead power, I can't even wait to see what will bloom from that effort because it makes people smarter. And when you're buying on an open market, I, we believe, our company believes, compared to being insulated in a regulatory system, we believe that it'll make us even better at what we're doing and will reduce energy even further. We, um, our energy bill is roughly $85 million a year in Las Vegas. Uh, our footprint in Las Vegas is about 75,000 homes. Uh, we have 15 resorts in Las Vegas, which is a, a big benefit because the density of our operations Uh, provide us a lot of opportunity to do things that more disparate operations may not be able to do. One of the many Verge talks we heard over the past three days was Bill Gross, who's the uh, founder of Idealab, based in Pasadena, California. Uh, Bill, I've known for uh, a long time. He's really sort of an entrepreneur's entrepreneur and not only is starting a number of businesses in the internet and technology space, uh, the early search engines and some of the early Twitter search kinds of things. And uh, But he, he set up a uh, an incubator for a number of different companies, including uh, solar companies, uh, back before that was really a thing. And um, and he has a great perspective on, on entrepreneurship and clean technology. We, you know, we at Verge actually don't talk much about clean technology. We don't use that term. Uh, I just have to say um, I sort of pivoted away from clean technology. It's just technology. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if it's clean, great, but all technology should be. And some of this, what people now refer to as clean technology is just isn't 
it's like data analytics and software. So Bill has been at the heart of whatever we call this for a long time. And he has a really interesting perspective uh, on how technology comes to market and the role of, if you will, clean technology in all of this. So let's listen to a little bit of what he had to say. We love the fossil fuels and the lifestyle it gives us. In fact, in the United States right now, there's 1.8 people per household and 1.9 cars per household, more cars than people per household, just as an example of our love of fossil fuels. If you take modest population growth and the rest of the world catching up to us in this room, we'll need 50 terawatts by 2050 to power the planet, a 35 terawatt gap from where we are right now. And dirty carbon-based fuels make up 85% of that. We have to get away from that next 35 terawatts coming from dirty fossil fuels. Otherwise, there's no way we're going to make it. Because as big as our atmosphere seems, as you can see from this picture looking at Earth from far away, it's only a tiny, thin sliver. And we're throwing so much junk up there. I did the following calculation to try and visualize how much we're throwing up there. Because you always hear these numbers about number of tons being thrown up and how much we're putting in the atmosphere, parts per million. It sounds small. It doesn't sound like it's really a problem. And in fact, you can't see it. You can't see it right with your, with your naked eyes. So you seem like, it seems like it's not that bad. But in fact, look at these numbers. All 7 billion people on Earth throw away about one, make about one pound of trash each day. One pound of trash that we throw onto the ground somewhere, puts in a landfill, goes away somewhere. One pound. But every person on Earth puts 31 pounds of CO2 into the atmosphere every day. 31 times as much stuff we throw up there than we throw out down here. And that's going to catch up with us. That's why we have to do something. That's why it's so urgent, and that's why it's so big. We have a 35 terawatt gap to make up, and it's only going to come, if we want to get off fossil fuels, from these six things. Nuclear, geothermal, wind, tides, biomass, and solar. And solar is the only one that's a thousand times what we need. Solar strikes the Earth with 15,000 terawatts a day. So one thousandth of that is all we need to make up our entire 15 terawatts that we're using right now. So we need to find a way to cost-effectively do that. If we can beat the cost, it will happen. And that's why it's such an enormous financial opportunity. Also, great news for us, the sun is the most uniformly distributed natural resource of anything on Earth, more evenly distributed than water, more evenly distributed than any precious natural resource. So it's everywhere. Pretty much everywhere where people live, there's enough sun to make their energy needs happen. And fortunately, the exponential growth is happening. There's exponential growth in solar installs. There's exponential decline in price. Solar has gone down 10% per year for 30 years now. That's really making it affordable. The yearly solar installations is way up. The number of gigawatts globally is going dramatically from many, many countries, not just the United States. China's dominating. China's leading the way. It's probably going to have 80 gigawatts installed by 2020. So a huge amount is going to be installed just in that one country alone, in that one year alone. China overtook Germany in 2013. The, the prices of the, of the solar companies is moving all over uh, in the stock market, and yet the demand is growing constantly. Almost like when I look back at the dot-com crash, there was a big dip in the stock prices, but there was continuing growth of the usage. And that same thing is happening in the solar space. We're going to see so much more growth in the future, even outside of the individual little blips that occur. The NASDAQ had these dips, but there was a smooth curve with exponential fit of the increasing usage of the internet and those technologies. The same thing is happening here. Exponential curve in wind, exponential curve in batteries, all of these markets, and we've under-forecasted some of them. If you look back at 2002, we projected one gigawatt per year um, of, of solar by 2010. In fact, it was 17 times larger than that. And it was 58 times larger than that last year, 58 times larger than what was projected. So there's enormous opportunity. 
The investment is way bigger in fossil fuel in, in renewables now than in fossil fuels, and going forward, it's going to completely dominate. Another ongoing theme through uh, Verge Hawaii 2016 uh, were utilities, the role of utilities in uh, the clean economy and the in clean energy. Um, and it's got a little, got a little controversial at times. Um, I had the uh, CEO of, of Hawaii Electric Company, Hiko, uh, Alan Oshima, on stage with uh, Mina Morita, who is a, a former uh, chair of the PUC here in Hawaii. Um, and, you know, the, the, the role of... of, of centralized power and, and how much uh, of a role the utility should play versus you know, everybody having solar on their roof and a very distributed model uh, and what, what you know do we still need the grid and what role does the grid play and and what are the new business models and should utilities have a big role or a subsidiary role here's a bit of what alan oshima had to say i think it's been easy for people to uh, focus only on the electric utilities role um, which by the way I must assure you that we are totally in it to win it. I mean, we are so aligned to try to get to 100%, but we have to do it responsibly. And I like to ask people to take personal accountability in their part in getting the state to that goal. And it's not only on the electric generation side, as we have individuals with rooftop PV, um, they are actually generators as well. And so we have to come up with a reasonable portfolio that works for all and protects all of our customers while getting to the state's goal. And for that, you know, everyone has to take some accountability and understand what their role is. And it's not only about providing for themselves, but how does their role actually move the state and everyone else to fairly get to uh, share in that prosperity of 100% renewable. Mm -hmm. When you look at a 30-year planning horizon, uh, it's not perfect. Uh, most companies who undertake even a master planning process will stretch to get three years, at the most five. And even then, knowing that what's out there is totally uncertain. Um, what we think we have to do is kind of agree on the foundation. The first next five years, what is necessary to lay the foundation so that we can integrate safely, reliably, and cost-effectively renewables that serves everyone. Um, here's, here's an example. We come across um, applications for, under the new grid supply program, applications for as many as 60 panels on a rooftop with a family of four. Um, What's the wattage of that, kilowattage? I, I'm not going to give you the wattage, but I know it's oversized okay. for, the, for this house. It's more than they need. And on the grid supply, 
you know, it, it reconciles monthly. It doesn't add up into a bank for reconciliation annually. And I'm thinking, this is probably not the right thing to do. Yeah. And the more uh, that we have exporting into the system, and the customer is not going to get the benefit of it because of the monthly reconciliation, we're also uh, creating an additional penetration issue for the neighbors to be able to get rooftop solar. So that's what I mean. I think there has to be kind of an alliance of thought as to what makes sense to get everyone there. And of course, this event wasn't happening in a vacuum. We had a lot of things uh, sort of breaking in real time. And one of those, and I'm sure everyone has been following closely, is the proposed Tesla buyout of SolarCity, so a potential Elon Musk energy powerhouse in the making. Uh, we actually had Greg Kalman from Tesla Energy on stage, uh, sort of on a, a panel discussing emerging energy storage technology. And while he didn't have a whole lot to say about the potential buyout, since that's still sort of being decided, uh, it was great to have him there. Uh, and another sort of interesting way we were able to bring together people that are on different sides of sort of the news that's that's been evolving in the energy space is uh, having the CEO of NextEra, which is a mainland utility uh, that is proposed to be merging with HECO, which, as you mentioned, is the Hawaii Electric Company. Another way we got sort of a window into current events was when Eric Gleason, the president of NextEra Energy Transmission, took the stage, NextEra obviously being the party that is involved in a proposed merger with HECO, or the Hawaiian utility. Um, And he participated in a really interesting interview on sort of how you come into a market in Hawaii that maybe there's some traditional skepticism that's entrenched of mainlanders sort of coming in uh, to seize on an economic opportunity. And he really sort of talked about it head on in that he said, uh, well, many of the people in the room or working in the state energy office were sort of convinced that the the road to 100% renewables can be achieved, he he really was quite upfront in saying that he thought there was a long way to go in both education and sort of hammering out the the details of implementation. You know, outside of this room, uh, for a lot of the people in the state, there's a lot of skepticism about about the viability of the 100% renewable energy goal. And let me just say, by the way, I'm a big believer in it, so I'm not, please don't shoot the messenger, I'm not, I'm not, um, uh, trying to you know be a downer. Um, I will also just add um, that in the you know in the 18 months or so that I've been very fortunate to be living here and going around the state and you know, I've met with almost 7,000 people now and had a lot of conversations about energy. And my sense is that that it kind of corroborates uh, that online poll that you know there is a lot of skepticism about about whether you know the track that we're on is actually uh, achievable or desirable. Fundamentally, you know, if, if we get too out of step with where the consumers are, where the voters are, uh, this transformation, in my view, won't be sustainable, or certainly at a minimum you can say it's at risk, because at the end of the day, the consumers, the voters, are going are gonna to decide whether we continue down this path. Probably I've spent more of my time talking with people um, around the state on these sorts of issues than anything else over the last 18 months, and, you know, in that time I've got to about 0.5% of the population of Hawaii, and on my current you know, rate, uh, that would take about 300 years to get to everybody. And so clearly that's not the way forward, right? And probably there's a lot of you who think you could do a better job of that than I could anyway, and I'm not going to argue that. So, so we've got to find a better way to engage with people. I think this is, energy is a really complicated area. Uh, you know, any conversation I have, there's, there's an element of just kind of getting a, a common uh, basis of facts. I'm sure many of you find that. 
Um, I think there's real skepticism. There's, there is um, a lack of trust by, by consumers, by people in the community generally. Uh, some of that's directed towards the utility. We all know that, but it's, it's broader than that. You know, it's towards, it's towards government. Uh, it's even towards the PUC. And I think we need to get past that um, and, and develop some trust. Um, I think what, what um, the Maui Economic Development Board did uh, a couple of years ago uh, with their Empower Maui study was a, a very systematic way of getting out in the community, conveying some basic information, getting people's input. Um, I think that's something like that is important, but at the same time, we need to show that we're listening and um, that, that ultimately that consumers are, are part of, this, you know, of deciding the path forward and, and um, you know, hopefully as part of that, they, only they, they start to recognize not only is it possible, but, but this is a good thing. So aside from the state and utility dynamics that were sort of front and center a lot of this week, another dynamic that I was really interested in was how the local cities, we had mayors from uh, Maui and uh, Kauai that were talking about how they, as the local officials, are looking to parlay the state goal and bring it down to the local level. Um, in Maui, it's a really interesting case because um, their mayor has actually proposed going 100% renewable, I think I heard as long as five years ago. So they've sort of been pushing the conversation in this realm for a while now. Um, but it was interesting to hear him talk about sort of how um, maybe there's even potential to be a little bit bolder than Hawaii is already being. So let's take a listen to what Mayor Alan Arakawa had to say. When we're looking at where we need to go, we, we know that uh, there are going to be a lot of givens that we have today, assumptions that we make that are not going to exist. You know, when we look at what we have to be able to evaluate, we never plan comprehensively where we bring in what's going to happen to our environment. How are we going to plan the roads? Where are we going to plan the water systems? How are we going to be able to put energy to all of these different areas we need to put energy? How are they all going to commingle? At the same time, the entities that we consider locked in concrete today may not be around tomorrow. I watched HCNS folding their cane fields, Pioneer Mills gone, Molokai Ranch closed their ranch, Maui Pine disappear. So I watched major companies disappear. If Hawaiian Electric had gotten their way, they would have been gone and we would have been next era right now. So the entities that we know that exist today cannot be the entities that set the parameters for what we need to have in long-term discussion because they may all disappear. When we're looking at cost, we talk about avoided cost a lot of times. But what is avoided cost other than a short-term discussion? The costs that were there five years ago or two years ago and today are very, very different. The cost figures fluctuate so greatly that to have discussions on avoided costs really just muddles up the water because the real discussion has to be where do we want to end up if we want to be 100% renewable and we want to be able to protect the environment and we want to be able to provide a future for our, our children, how are we going to put all of that together into one package so that they work with each other and are not separate entities that are being planned that may not help the other parts of the plan. It's going to have to be very, very comprehensive, and I believe we're approaching it in kind of a mishmash where we're looking at today's <laughs> challenge 
and we're not taking a look at 50 and 100 years from now. Yeah, it was really an interesting uh, week, uh, just in terms of hearing from so many different voices about renewable energy, uh, what it takes, what the vision is, how you get from here to there, what the intermediate steps are in between, the roles of everybody, from from the uh, builders to the consumers to the utilities to the independent energy uh, producers, and on and on. It's just it, and the politicians, of course. Um, and so let's uh, finish up with hearing some some bits and pieces uh, of, of some of the interviews. The first up is the interview that I did with uh, uh, two assistant secretaries of defense, uh, Miranda Ballantyne from the Air Force and uh, Dennis McGinn, we mentioned earlier, from the Navy. And here's some of what they had to say about the role of the military in uh, both securing for their own needs and for and working with local communities to uh, scale renewable energy. Well, for all of the services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, our energy efforts, our environmental efforts are all about mission. Uh, it is all about increasing mission effectiveness by using uh, less energy, but to get the same or better outcomes. It's uh, all about uh, operational efficiency, uh, and we measure it, our success, not in gallons or barrels saved or, or megawatts saved or what have you. That's certainly interesting in the money that that implies, but it's can we do the mission better? Can our installations across the Department of Defense be more secure and have more reliable uh, energy security. The Department of Defense, uh, in aggregate, uses uh, about 2% of the total energy that the United States uses. That makes us the largest single organization in terms of energy consumption. And the good news is our overall consumption continues to come down over time, and the mix of where that energy comes from whether it's transportation fuel, or trans, I should say transportation energy, or installation energy, the portfolio is getting much more diversified and much less carbon intense, much less dependent on fossil fuel. The Air Force spends about $9 billion a year on energy. $9 billion, that, that's your dollars, for those of you that are Americans, because it's taxpayer dollars. About 80% of that is jet fuel. So we have about 5,000 aircraft. That's more than if you add up United, American, Southwest, Delta, UPS, FedEx, add them all up combined, we've got more. But if you're talking about our installations, the threat environment really has changed quite dramatically, I'd say, in the last five to 10 years. Uh, so over the course of the last couple of decades, the military has actually been shutting down most of the power plants on base and transitioning to the commercial power grid for both reliability and cost reasons. And what we're finding in the last, I'd say, five years is the threat environment to the utility grids, which we've been talking about some today, has changed pretty dramatically. Um, in just the last five years, DHS tells us that there's been a seven-fold increase in cyber attacks to the utility grid. Uh, actually not just the utility grid, all of our public infrastructure. And we've seen a significant increase in physical attacks against the grid. Mm -hmm. So no longer are we just talking about outages due to storms and weather events, which are also increasing, by the way, 
Um, we're also talking about physical and, and cyber risk. We also heard from Mark Glick, the head of the Hawaii State Energy Office, uh, our host and partner in this event, uh, who's uh, at the front lines of what it takes for Hawaii as a state to really lead these efforts. This is really a long-term effort. We should look at the long-term view. What do we need to build to achieve 100% renewable in the electricity sector, but also to integrate all the pieces in what we now see as an emerging combined ecosystem? Uh, electric vehicles and alternative fuel vehicles will be a big part of this. Uh, you've heard it's two-thirds of our energy mix in Hawaii, and so a lot of infrastructure needs to be developed, and I think we can leverage the resources of the uh, bases here and, and certainly uh, you know, maybe create some new pathways and corridors uh, on that side of business. And then the other piece is, of course, making sure that we have a resilient and safe and reliable system and looking at cybersecurity because with advanced metering infrastructure that you heard uh, Colton Ching and others talk about today, uh, we're kind of opening the door for uh, uh, you know, having other people be able to peek in the system unless we make it very strong and resilient. So that was all just a taste of everything that's been happening this week here in Honolulu. Um, you can follow up and learn more about all of this by going to greenbiz.com. We've been writing news articles about this. There will be videos and also kind of a cool feature. We taped the live stream we were doing. We do them at all of our events and you can watch that for free on our website. We'll be sure to link to that in the notes from this episode. Um, but yeah, big week full of, full of lots of interesting topics that I'm sure we'll be following a lot more from here on out. And we'll be back here this same week next year in uh, June, uh, back here at the, uh, Hilton Hawaiian Village uh, Resort uh, with uh, another great group of public private sector, all kinds of different speakers. Um, but before that, we'll take Verge to Santa Clara the week of September 19th. So uh, lots more to come on the Verge front. And for this week, that's the Aloha edition of 350 Podcasts. You'll find links to organizations, stories, the events, and everything else in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks to our podcast director back home at the headquarters in the mainland in Oakland, California, Soraya Melconian. Send us your feedback, your ideas, and comments to 350 at greenbiz.com. And we'll be back in Oakland next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. We'll leave you with a little uh, Hawaiian traveling music. And meanwhile, for all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time, have a great day. Mahalo and aloha. Aloha.